Amanda Cohen. It was like the same era, 20, 2009, 2010. I was going to say 2009. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> what, what world are we living in? That was 10 years ago. Good God. 2009. 2009. 10 years ago. <laughs> Did people say that back then? I don't feel like anybody ever said like 2001, but why not? That sounds actually pretty excellent. <laughs> because it's going to be 2020, 2020 and you're going to say 2021. Why do we do this 2019? Why don't we do 2019? Well, I guess we do. We do. 20, Never mind. 20, 2009. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one who says 2009. <laughs> I don't think that well, I'm like, to... <laughs> Can you laugh just like... <laughs> my mom laughs like that, laugh. though. No, actually, my mom, when you get her going, her laugh turns into this. <laughs> Can I just record like some behind-the-scenes footage amazing. of us? Are you That's okay amazing. with sure, that? Sure, sure. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't want to out my mom. <laughs> you already did. You just outed. I just did. <laughs> mom. What's your mom's name? Paula. Paula Baginski. Yes. Paula Baginski. If you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're watching this for any reason, we know so how you sorry. laugh now. We know how you laugh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Vacillating insecurity. <laughs> it could be a band name. It could be a title of a book. It could be an online course. It could be just something that you're aware of. So what does that mean, Karen? What is vacillating? It's, it's such a, it, phonetically, it's such a pleasing thing to say, but let's dive into what that Where is. Where did that even come from? Where did that term, did I miss that in a conversation? You did miss that. You missed it about You guys were ago. talking about that. Yeah. And we were discussing it. It was a bug in my brain and it's such an insecurity in general is such an a vulnerable topic to talk about, like what are our personal insecurities? But I'm very curious. We're just going deep from the gut. Like, what's your relationship, Karen, to insecurity? How do you dance with that in your daily life? Moreover, like, how do you spiritually and mentally manage that in your life? I know that's like three questions in one, but let's just dive into the deep end. Like, let's throw the floaties off and just go there. Let's do it. I know this world well, and especially now because my profession is yoga teacher yoga and meditation teacher, studying to become a yoga therapist. That's kind of the whole world of yoga therapy. What you just described in that question is, how do you mentally, emotionally, spiritually grasp your insecurity and live in this world? Mm. Because all of us want connection and belonging and love, yeah. but we know that you can't have those things without risking being vulnerable and exposing yourself, showing up, being seen to some degree. And this topic is near and dear to my heart because this is what I've started to dedicate my work toward with women, specifically through yoga therapy, of figuring out how do you live with a vacillating insecurity in your life of some days you might feel really great about things and yourself and other days stuff happens and suddenly your mood is affected or your emotions are affected or who knows? Something happens to get you off course from where you thought that you were. Yeah. And for me, I feel like this continuum happens of vacillation. <laughs> I'm a writer. I love big words. I always have. 
So that's Jason. Any, yeah. So you're not alone in that. <laughs> you're in good company. Yeah. Any one point, how do you meet yourself where you're at so that you don't fall into either a hyper state of anxiety or that inertia of depression? All of which I've known personally in my life and has been such a life work to work through for myself through the tools in this case of my profession now, which is yoga. So I love this topic. I don't know that I have an answer for you. How do you, other than about how to actually manage that, other than it's just a continual practice. Yeah. It's something every single day that I work at. It's really interesting talking about this because I wonder if this is just part of the human condition, but it seems unique to us sometimes to talk about our depression because it's not talked about very openly. But what if everybody is going through this or just not talking about it? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting time now for mental health in general. When you look online, there's a ton of memes about it. Yes. Yes. Part of me, and I was actually talking with my husband about this because he is going to grad school for to become a mental health counselor. And so he has sort of the talk side of things, and I have more of the somatic and body side of things. Power and perspective. (laughs) Yeah. And how memes can be helpful because they normalize and they show you that you're not alone, but also they kind of give you a permission slip then to just sit on the couch and not do the things that will actually help you get better. The thing that it's so wonderful that you brought this up because I have an acquaintance in LA named Kat who is a holistic health counselor and does a lot of things. And I wasn't aware of this meme thing until about a year ago. And she said specifically with millennials, young millennials and like net geners, like Gen Z. And she was forwarding all of these memes to me, these like comedy memes where people were making fun of their depression, suicidal ideation and crippling anxiety. And to your point, Karen, it's like, my initial emotional reaction to that was like, ooh, I never thought about this idea of them attempting to normalize it in a way, but I think it was the framing as someone who struggled in the past and still sometimes do, to be honest with you, with depression and suicidal ideation, it hit me in a weird way. Like, I don't know if I want to make fun of this. And some of it felt like, and I'm paraphrasing now, but some of the memes were like, all these figures are these shots from movies, and it's like, crippling anxiety, lack of self-belief, trying to kill myself. And then like it was like someone sitting on the couch with like a bag of popcorn and potato chips going, me trying not to think about all that stuff. (laughs) And I don't know, it just, it hurt my heart because it it made me think of a study by Harvard Health that I I was reading a couple years ago while I was preparing for a presentation on this topic and doing some research that for teenagers and young adults that suicide is the second leading cause of death. I think it was between 15 and 21-year-olds. And I thought, my God, it's the second leading cause of death. And then to see people doing these memes, I kind of have a mixed, I don't know, I still feel funny about it. But when you said normalize it, I mean, maybe that's what they're attempting to do is, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is I hear what you're saying and and I still feel weird about it. You know. And what exactly does it mean to normalize it? Like, Is it making it okay or is it making it a permission slip? Is it confusing people? I mean, That's what I'm leaning towards is that if people see so many other people talking about depression and anxiety, maybe they feel like, oh, well, that's just normal. Like it's everyone feels this way. And so do I need to do anything about it? This is just life. Or do they 
kind of, yeah, like the permission slip idea. I, it's a little hard to verbalize it. I don't think I've ever talked about this much out loud, but it does feel interesting when it's on social media because if you see something so much, you see something so casually, it makes it okay. But is it okay for it to be that okay? I guess is my question. It's not to necessarily judge or shame anybody for having those experiences, but are we perpetuating something that if we didn't normalize it in that way, like, I guess in other words, is it heightening the incidents or is it causing people to feel more depressed and anxious simply because they feel like everybody feels depressed and anxious? So that's just how their life is. I think that's where it gets really dangerous is this idea, well, everybody just feels like this. This is how we show up in our lives we in this society of this is the normal, right? Of I grind really hard at my day job or my hustle, whatever that is. And I come home and I sit on the couch and I pop out Netflix and I try to tune out and relax, quote unquote, relax. When all that's doing is continuing to stimulate your brain and filling it with a bunch of other stories. And TV is pretty violent too. So then that goes into your mind as well. And you don't think that all of these things are affecting you or your energy at the end of the day, but they really are. What you take in and what you feed yourself and what you consume, not just feeding physically, eating food, but what you are taking in through your senses and what you're watching and what you're looking at on social media, all of that contributes to the state of your mind and your well-being. Yeah. And when that becomes a normal thing, like everybody just kind of shows up, does X, Y, Z, and then start over, try to go to bed now with all of these anxieties from your day and start over without really a reset for your nervous system, we end up walking around and having issues. Stress is the root of much disease, tons of disease. So I love that you talked about the root of it because I feel that when it comes to mental and emotional health, mental and emotional wellness, there's so many myriad uh, strategies or things that people can attempt to do. I personally feel that a lot of them are not addressing the root, they're addressing symptom. So I'm curious, you know, with your work, with yoga therapy and mindfulness and meditation and the things that you assist women with and the things you've put out on social media, what have you found, first of all, A, effective in terms of yoga and meditation and mindfulness? And B, when you talk to people, you really get in deep with them and you work with them one-on-one. What commonalities have you found in terms of dealing with those roots? And what things have you found are at the root of people's struggles with this? One of the biggest things that even I had to learn early on is to consciously take time to do nothing. Whoa. A lot of listeners are going to be like, what do you mean do nothing? And I don't want to do that. What are you talking about, right? (laughs) Doing less, doing nothing, nothing at all. And by that context, one of the primary techniques that I love to use with people because it's so accessible is a style of meditation, but it's not the type of meditation when you think about just sitting there holding the mudra in your hands, trying to keep your spine as straight as possible, and just watching the thoughts. Good luck, right, for most of us when you assume that position. Most of us are like, uh, no, (laughs) I'm going to think about a million different things and feel like when I'm done with this that it hadn't helped me at all. Right. So yoga nidra. This is a life-changing meditation technique that I've experienced over the past several years of my life. It has really shifted things for me in a big way when I continually practice it. And that's what I primarily use as one of the techniques with women. It is a horizontal style of meditation. So you're just lying on your back, maybe in bed, maybe on the ground, 
and doing nothing but listening to a guided meditation. It takes you through your body, through your breath. The idea is that you get deeper into conscious sleep than you would if you are actually sleeping because the mind's still going when you're sleeping, dreaming. But in Yoga Nidra, you try to arrive at the delta brainwaves, which is dreamless sleep. And it's that state of the body and the nervous system when you can hold yourself there and ride that wave between waking and sleep, which is what nidra means. Nidra means sleep. When you can get into that space, your body accesses that deep healing capacity. Wow. Yeah. On a cellular level, it's used actually in the military, PTSD. There's protocols for it, hospitals, prisons, schools. It's super accessible because you're lying on your back. So yeah, the hardest part is staying awake sometimes, but even that's okay because they say the last sense that never shuts off when you're sleeping is your hearing. So at some level, you're still hearing that's even if you fall asleep. I did not know that is I so didn't fascinating. Know that either. What, okay. So yoga. So I truthfully, I've done yoga nidra, gosh, maybe thrice in my life. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I mean, we started with vacillating. I've got to bring in thrice. <laughs> if we're going to go into like old English Baroque language, I'm going to bring in thrice. First of all, what are the benefits? Have there been any studies in terms of the effects on brain neurotransmitters or, say, blood pressure levels? Have there, have there been any studies that have shown direct physiological benefits yes. to yoga nidra? Uh-huh. What yeah, are those? Yeah, there's been a lot of studies around it. Neurotransmitters such as serotonin, GABA, which is the body's Valium, increase. So the, basically, the helpful neurotransmitters increase the stress hormones decrease. Like cortisol. Cortisol, exactly. There's been measured changes to the thickness and with meditation in general, but also yoga nidra, the thickness of the gray matter in certain aspects of the brain. So your prefrontal cortex, you have more gray matter development there and less of a connection to your amygdala. When you think about that, the prefrontal cortex is that logical reasoning higher mind that we'd associate with making good decisions and being able to control impulses and things like that, amygdala being the fight or flight. Wow. So that connection decreases. And yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of different research out there that corroborates what this ancient technique from like 800 BC was mentioned in one of the Indian texts. This has been around for so long, but it's not really mainstream. Okay, so this brings up by the way, I just love where we're going because it feels like this journey, this conversation is already, it's so useful for me, like everything you're sharing because of what I've gone through and continue to go through. And with I, sleep specifically or, with, or you mean Well, with, with sleep depression. and depression and anxiety and everything. And I guess I'm curious where you see the intersection of these ancient healing modalities or say Ayurvedic herbs or eating plant-based, eating, all these things that we've been doing for thousands of years and things like, um, you know, new technologies like you see things like weighted blankets, or you see things like blanking right now on certain electromagnetic therapies. But if we talk about SSRIs or pharmaceuticals, what do you see as the balance between these ancient healing techniques, these more holistic therapies for anxiety, depression, and maybe more of the new school pharmaceutical or technological advances? Like, What's that relationship like for you and how do you see that? For me, because I have also been clinically depressed in my life and I've been on two Two antidepressants. SSRIs? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school and then after college. And that's the whole reason why I got into yoga and why I did a career shift because I was a journalist before this. That's how I met you guys in my journalism job. Yeah. So I don't discredit Western medicine. I think when you start to become black and white about healing, mm -hmm. 
you're missing out on an aspect that could really move the needle for you the most. Yeah. And so I think that it's really up to the person and the healing team, healing team to give advice, but then the person to look inside and say, yeah, I'm going to trust and I'm going to go down this path and I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that and never really give up on yourself because the next thing that you try might be the thing that helps you heal. Right. I feel like so many people, one of the big things that we want to address with this podcast is encouraging people to continue to experiment even when it feels uncomfortable to keep pushing yourself. A lot of people are looking for shortcuts. Maybe the reason that they look for shortcuts is because the discomfort. It's like, well, I don't want to continue being in pain for too long. So let me do whatever it takes to get out of pain the quickest. I think that's a very primal urge. But in this modern day that we're in, it's almost like incredibly confusing because I think a lot of people know that the shortcuts may not be best for them long term. But there's almost this panic of if I don't do something right away, if I don't get pleasure right away, if I don't get out of this pain right away, then I'm just going to continue to suffer and I don't know how I'm going to get through my life. I mean, I think that's a huge thing. It's huge when it comes to food. A lot of people don't want to eat healthier because that transition from how they're currently eating to something that might be better for their long-term health, that transition is where it's really uncomfortable. And I think the same thing is true with... uh any of the quote unquote shortcuts that you might take to relieve depression, anxiety, those type of things. I mean, I remember I took antidepressants for a small period of time in college and it was simply out of a panic I was feeling because I didn't know why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And I, I was desperate to get out of it very quickly. A psychiatrist that gave me that medication, but ultimately wasn't the medication to help. It was the therapy I was getting from her. And then I've spent the rest of my life since that time really trying to figure out how to feel my best every day. But it's been over 10 years since that time, right? So I personally had to find that inner strength to be uncomfortable for a long period of time through all of this experimenting. But I feel like a lot of people are very afraid of that discomfort and how long it might take, right? Like, when am I going to get out of the suffering? Is that looming question all the time? Okay. So I want a question for both of you because this is so interesting. So much like you, Karen, I was diagnosed with clinical depression five years ago, literally five years ago since the recording of this, this particular episode. And I remember at the time, my doctor, who's experienced in both Eastern and Western, he gave me the option. He was like, okay, you know, we can, we can tackle this from a pharmaceutical approach if you want, or we can do a more holistic methodology with therapy and meditation and getting you on the right supplements and adjusting your diet. Pause there for a second. Since both of you have had experience with SSRIs, was there any sense of shame around taking them? Because I feel like in the holistic health world, there is this almost binary thing of like, Western medicine's bad, pills are bad, anything chemical is bad, anything laboratory made is bad. And there's this hard line I feel in a lot of people in the holistic health world that they have this attitude of like, I'm never going to take a pharmaceutical. So was there any kind of emotional stickiness around taking those pills? And, and how did that affect you both emotionally? My answer is short because at that time, I didn't know nearly what I know today. Ah. So I didn't have any shame because I wasn't around people that knew that much about wellness. I don't think the wellness world was nearly as advanced or at least in my head mm -hmm. back then. So it's interesting. I don't remember thinking too much about it. I probably just kept it to myself. 
And that goes back to the difference of time. When I was taking the antidepressants, social media was not a thing. I mean, this is literally, I think, before Facebook was out. And so people, there wasn't even an opportunity unless I was having it in a conversation or seeing it on TV or reading a book. Like there wasn't this community that we have now. So I don't, shame was different back then. I think shame was very different before social media in general. Yeah. For me, I remember I had to take a liquid because I couldn't swallow pills. (laughs) And so I remember there being like this dual thing of Prozac of being like, well, I can't swallow the pill and I don't like swallowing pills when I was in high school. So I'm going to take this little like vial of Prozac and pray that this be the thing that helps me out of it in high school because literally nothing in my life was wrong. This was where the shame came in for me. I had a very privileged life growing up. I'm well aware of my privilege as a white woman. Yeah, there's the woman thing, but being white and growing up where I did and going to the private school and my parents having money and what was wrong with me that I couldn't enjoy where I was in my life at that time. It really just blindsided me. So for me, the shame was more wrapped up around, well, I can't swallow pills (laughs) and I have to take this liquid and I shouldn't be feeling this way. There's nothing that really could have made me feel this way. Looking back on that though, because that's more than 15 years ago, I was very introverted and I didn't have a lot of close friends. And I think part of that lack of connection drove me ever more inward into that inner world that wasn't always positive, that was the vacillating insecurity. Talk about that of being a teen. Oh my God. (laughs) At that point in my life of just feeling like, am I going to make friends, close friends? Do people like me? Am I going to get the A? I was very tough on myself as a kid, had a big inner critic even from a young age. So do you think that inner criticism was part of the root? Like, why do you think you were feeling that way? If you couldn't find any obvious reasons for it, I think this is such an important topic because I can relate to that too. I also grew up very privileged. And I don't know if I thought that much about it when I was struggling and decided to take antidepressants. I think I was just looking for an escape. It was like, I just got to get out this pain. So yeah, it's interesting now. I'm starting to reflect back on my own experiences of like, yeah, where did that come from? Why was I feeling that way? And in this moment, for me, I think it was because I didn't know how to deal with my emotions yet, right? I mean, being a teenager or even someone that was, this was during my freshman year of college, I just didn't have the emotional tools. So I think a lot of the things that I was feeling, I still feel to this day, they still come up, but I have more tools now that I turn to instead of medication. That was for me, it was just like, I probably didn't actually need to be on antidepressants, I was just at a loss of understanding myself. I hadn't started to understand myself. I didn't have the consciousness. I didn't have tools like yoga and meditation that I turn to now or aromatherapy. Like I didn't know any of that stuff. And that's part of my personal passion for educating people now is like giving them all these tools that they can use instead of or in addition to the medication. But for you, like, did you come to any conclusion about why you were feeling that? Now at the time, I can look back on that and articulate everything, right, that I just said of like that kind of was what was really going on. At the time, though, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that I felt horrible and I didn't want to exist anymore, right? And then I wasn't getting... Maybe because of the introversion, you think, was... Well, I think it was a lack of, yeah, having a strong community in terms of mirrors, having people to say like, no, getting me out of just my own internal world and having connection 
And then another part was just being a person who, for whatever reason, genetically or how I was raised, I don't know, but I'm the type of person who who has high expectations of myself. And when I wasn't performing well at school or something got tough and you know, I started to get down on myself and that created this spiral, I think, of feeling like I wasn't enough, which is the root of a lot of issues, that whole sense of feeling like you're not enough. I am so glad that you said that because... Can I just pause for a second before? I know you're excited, Jason, but (laughs) just to go back to what we were saying before, this might sound really obvious, but maybe that explains why there's so much on social media, all these memes about depression and anxiety. Because if not enoughness and self-criticism is at the root of a lot of those feelings, we can't generalize, but I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Social media, we also know, is causing a lot of those feelings, or maybe not causing them, but escalating them, right? Is that the comparison trap on social media? We can look at someone and say, I'm not good enough compared to them, or whatever that criticism is coming up in. Again, all three of us were lucky not to have social media in our teenage years and even at the beginning of college for me. But still, we experienced that. So I can't imagine what that's like to be a teenager now with social media and not just compare yourself to your classmates in school or to your family members or your friends, but to compare yourself to basically the entire world and feel not good enough, right? The not good enoughness thing. I mean, I just love that we're swimming in this part of the pool right now because it's it's such a layered, nuanced, deep thing, though, that so many of us share as human beings. And perhaps the thoughts or the nuances of why we think we're not enough might be varied, but the fact that most of us know what that feels like. I just want to dig into this because I think there's so many layers to not enoughness in this comparison thing. It's like we have societal expectations, right, on a general of what society says as a man or woman or a white person or person of color or whatever it is, like, as this type of person, you ought to have this job. You ought to be making this type of money. If you want to be happy, these are the aspects of life you ought to pursue relentlessly. And then there's maybe the deeper layer of like familial expectations that are in our subconscious. So I'm just curious, Karen, what your particular tools are, not only for yourself, but what you teach with your clients and your students to address this really deep-seated issue. And how do you break that down with people that you work with? Why I'm so drawn to yoga and why I found my way there after my second antidepressant is because of this one simple statement. Yoga and yoga therapy techniques really aim to help you remember who you really are, which is that you're not broken and you don't need to be fixed. You just need to remember. One of my teachers gave me that and I love, I think it's so potent and powerful that remembering who you really are at your core, which is not your vacillating insecurities and not today's mood or whatever's going on chemically in your brain. It is coming back home to yourself. And that's what yoga helps me do. So when I first started practicing, it was very much just a physical practice. Like most people go to classes and they know yoga as that, as just postures. And you put yourself into these crazy shapes, sometimes in heated rooms, sometimes not right? And you do your best to pay attention and come to alignment. I mean, I've been practicing for 10 plus years and teaching for a long time as well. Yeah, a long time. (laughs) And my practice has shifted to the point where now it's a lot more about 
addressing all aspects of me and not just the physical. So you can get at the emotional, you can get at the mental through the physical, but you can also lie down, do nothing in your physical body and experience bliss. So there's a lot of different ways to get at what you, the states that you want to feel and attain the vitality with the calm, not the burnout, not the fatigue, right? To find how to become more vibrant and more whole through many different tools of yoga, one of which is the postures that people know about. Another one is the seated meditation or lying down meditation. A huge one that doesn't really get a lot of play most most of the time is pranayama or breathing. Breathing is huge to shift and affect mood states. So I use a lot of different breathing techniques with my clients. I use a lot of different postures that will elicit a different response somatically in the body to release trauma. One of the big things that has helped me is one of like kind of the best kept secrets, I think, that was given as a gift to me on a very important retreat that shifted my perspective and helped me break through in my life. And this retreat is called Path of Loves. I'm going to do a little name drop because it's really helped me a lot a couple years ago. One of the tools is emotional discharging. This is basically where you allow yourself to have your emotions in a safe space with nobody else around and act them out. Don't just keep them in your brain. Don't write them down on a piece of paper. Grab a pool noodle or a pillow and take that anger out as you need to. I'm just visualizing you <laughs> raging with a pool noodle right now, Karen, I'm just slapping you, it all over the walls. I'm like, telling you, that alone changed my life. It sounds so crazy and it's a little embarrassing to admit. It feels a little uncomfortable. You said this might get uncomfortable. This is the moment when it is. However, <laughs> why, do I'm, wait, why does it feel uncomfortable to you though? Cause I, to I, talk about this? Yeah, because yeah, I'm leaning in like, wow, I, I really want to know more. I, I think know all it's because of judgment. It's because it's not something that we are told to do or taught that is okay. Anger, experiencing anger, experiencing frustration, taking that out, being irritable, all of these things are like, don't experience that. Don't go there. That will make you more angry. That will add fuel to the fire. In fact, I found that it douses the fire. When you actually let the emotion come out of your body somatically, it's very similar to like my little dog on my lap right now, who's getting a little amped, a little nervous. When she gets really anxious, she gives a calming yawn. She'll tend to like animals do this, right? Like big yawn and shake her body furiously. And all she's doing is resetting her nervous system. And that is the same work that you would be doing through emotional discharging is resetting your nervous system. This is so fascinating. And this is not my work. This is the work of Peter Levine and other somatic therapists that you may have heard of. We'll link to this in the show notes yeah. at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com because I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this too. <laughs> Without the judgment, they're going to be looking this up right now. I think it's also interesting you're touching on this, Karen, because I feel, right, we go back to kind of this binary, somewhat judgmental or myopic viewpoint a lot in the wellness community or holistic health community. It's like, you see it on t-shirts and stuff like, high vibes only, high vibes only, high oh vibes only, namaste, namaste, namaste. God, don't even get me started on high vibes only. And it's funny because I find myself being furious whenever I see that of like, you are denying Same. these aspects of your id and your cosmology right? The anger, the rage, the disappointment, the not enoughness by saying high vibes only and not giving people the permission or the tools, this amazing tool you just shared to say, 
yeah, like I have all this pressure because I saw this meme on Instagram, high vibes only, that I'm not allowing myself to be angry and fully experience that and discharge it. I'm not allowing myself to feel this latent rage that I've been denying for years. So I love that you said that because it flies in the face of this, yeah, this very myopic attitude of like, no, everything's amazing all the time and everything's high vibes all the time. It's like, that's not possible but we as also, human beings. I think one mindset shift that I've had lately is that it doesn't serve us to judge people that are thinking or speaking that way is because for them, maybe that tool helps them. Maybe for them, they need a mantra of high vibes only. Like that helps them cope, right? Maybe that perspective of let's stay positive all the time is working for them. So I think it's important to not judge anybody that might enjoy that idea for themselves. I think it's triggering the three of us because we personally don't see the world that way, right? True. But just because we don't see the world that way doesn't mean that it's not okay for somebody else to live that out. And to your point, though, the thing that I'm just very present to, I suppose, lately, because I know I've done it, and I've been that guy, especially like 12 years ago, arriving in Venice Beach for the first time, and everyone's high vibes, high vibes, high vibes, until I realized there was a lot of darkness and pain and suffering I hadn't dealt with for Mm. me because I was so focused on I got to be high vibes all the time. And I felt so much pressure to be happy and positive and be that guy to light up the room wherever I went. I wasn't addressing my own inner life as a result of that. So It's like the highlight reel though. I mean, that we see this on Instagram and I think that triggers a lot of us as well is that people are only posting the best parts of their lives or sometimes the worst parts of their lives. But what about the in-between? It's like, and then we start to compare ourselves to other people's best moments or worst moments that they're sharing, right? And so it's kind of like you're saying here is you might have been walking around saying high vibes only, but there was something going on under the surface that you weren't addressing and you weren't telling other people about. That's correct. And going back to the beginning of this conversation and thinking how many people probably deal with these tough emotions, but if they're not hearing other people talk about it, then they think they're alone. Or the other side of it is everybody's talking about it. Then you're just like, oh, this is totally normal. So it's, I think it's just interesting. It's all about how we present ourselves to others and the perspectives we have. But also remembering, as Jason pointed out, that we go through phases. At one point, you wanted to be the high vibes only guy, right? <laughs> that was you. And I'm sure I've gone through maybe, I don't know if I ever used that term, but I've had my own version of it of trying to like look at the world a certain way. And the way that we show up really depends on our experiences, our personal viewpoint. Well, there's a concept in yoga called pratipaksha bhavana, which is cultivation of the opposite. So it's part of the mental game of yoga is where there is a negative, if we want to use that word, thought or emotion, cultivate the opposite, which is where this whole, I think, high vibes thing came from is like, oh, well, I need to replace the negativity in my life and the people who are bringing me down with the positivity and attract what I want, right? And that whole kind of culture of manifestation. But how can you ever expect to be whole when you're so busy trying to keep part of your essential human nature at bay? Yeah. I feel like there's room to be a whole human, authentically joyful, and have all of you show up at the table, not just your pieces and parts. I love Karen. You have so many sound bites. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tripping right bite. now. Like you're saying it. I'm so present and I'm like, oh my God. 
the memes we are going to have of Karen's oh, no. quotes when we promote. I'm, I'm going like, to have my own memes. You are, but it's going to be oh, quotes because no. you've dropped so many like <laughs> the really God. good quotes. Um, I know. I've been thinking that the whole time too. I'm really excited. <laughs> what? Okay. Let's talk about healing because I wanted to address this. I think that we're in a culture that is so accomplishment oriented that it's like, I need to get this done. I need to achieve my goals. I need to make my dreams come true. And I think with healing, for some people, there's also that mentality that filters into their healing process. Like, I have to cure my cancer. I have to cure my depression. I have to get rid of anxiety, right? I hear these get rid of, cure, overcome. But in your experience specifically regarding mental health, emotional health, all the things we've been discussing today, is it something that can be, quote, cured? And is it a worthwhile pursuit to have that mentality around it? There's an end goal here. It's difficult when you talk about curing. That word is so loaded. And I don't think it always often serves us in the healing process because it presumes that there's an end point that you're trying to reach. And then after the end point, things will be different. But every single moment of your life, things are different. During the disease or the illness or whatever it is, the car accident that you've gone through, every single moment of that healing process is different. There's generally never an end point, which is so frustrating to me because I feel like I've lived my whole life trying to arrive, trying to get somewhere, trying to finally say like, okay, now, now I know it all. Now I have it all. Now I can be satisfied. But there's always more. And that's the nature of life itself is growth and expansion. That's the universe. The universe is always expanding. Well, I guess it's contracting in certain places, right? But we expand. We're always expanding too. If the world is like that, the nature outside of us is the nature within us. If we are really the stuff made of stars, and how can we expect ourselves to arrive at a certain point and just feel like we've been fully evolved and cured and saved or whatever it is? I think getting rid of some of that pressure, and maybe this goes back to me talking to myself as the teenage kid taking the antidepressant. If I could go back and talk to her now, my gosh, what a beautiful life I've had, even though I've had a lot of ups and downs and I've overcome a lot of different things. But if I could just take off that pressure from somebody to say, just show up for today, just be in this moment, meet yourself where you're at, where you need to be met at today through whatever technique is really going to move you toward healing rather than trying to keep it away, right? Go into that uncomfortable space and see what happens. That was incredible. You actually answered the question I was going to have for you anticipated the question, which was going to be what piece of advice you have given your younger self who was struggling with depression. You just Mm -hmm. answered that so beautifully, not just in that context, but I think for the listeners who might be struggling right now or feeling confused or having tried so many things and perhaps their suffering isn't being alleviated. But to know, as you said, that we're evolving, expanding beings. And as we always say, to be relentlessly experimental, that what works for you or Whitney or myself or any of the listeners those puzzle pieces, that Rubik's Cube combination per se, is going to vary for each one of us. And that one protocol necessarily isn't going to be exactly the right fit for everyone in their process. Everybody's different. And it's also about being very present, which is a mentality that served me so much because I think all three of us can also relate to this emotion of that pressure feeling the pressure of needing to be accomplished. I'm sure everybody listening can relate to that. Again, especially because of social media, this comparison of, well, look at that person's life. 
I want to have a house like that. I want to live a life like theirs. I want to look like them. I want to have that relationship like them. I want the career success. And if we're present to any joy that we can experience in this moment or just throughout one day at a time, it changes everything. Because Jason and I have talked about this many times, I think on the podcast, we talk about this privately often, which is, it seems like we're all kind of striving for success. But if you listen to interviews with people that have found success, they don't seem to be any happier. It's not like if you finally make the amount of money that you want, you're going to be any happier. Or if you get the car or the house or the relationship, there's always going to be something else that can disrupt your happiness, something else that can quote unquote, steal your joy away unless you are present to feeling happy and grateful no matter what your circumstances are. And when I look back on my old self, I think the same thing. I mean, when you're talking about, Karen, feeling that depression, anxiety, however you would describe it as a teenager, of feeling like you needed to be something maybe different than what you were or to accomplish something or you weren't there yet, you weren't good enough yet. And I feel like that's a lifelong struggle. It's amazing that you realized it so early on. Because I think some people maybe even go to their deathbed carrying that that pressure, lay in their deathbed, looking back, did they accomplish everything that they wanted? Did they live the life that they wanted, right? And so that present is how can I be happy right now in this moment, no matter what's happening? And if I'm not happy, that's okay too, right? It's more about acceptance than happiness, actually. Yeah, I think it's how can I be present to what is here now, like you said, whatever that is, and not surrender in the sense of, ah, I give up and I'm going to sit on the couch because it's normal to feel depressed, but to rather get curious that this thing that is in front of you is going to shift and change and just show up for that acceptance is really what it's all about. And that's when I felt the most movement against my inner critic is when I got out all of that anger and all of that frustration and all of the wanting of everything in my life to be different or to have arrived. And I just laid there and had this moment of, I'll describe it because this is the best I've, I can describe it. I was lying on my back and it just felt like I was a sky full of stars. There was a spaciousness in my chest and it was an okayness. And that's when I knew I was like, I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. I feel it. I know this in my body now. I know I can return here. And I don't live my life with that feeling every day. I'll be honest. I do my best to try to visit that space as much as I can. And something that you touched on, Whitney, too, that helps me stay there is gratitude, is being present to, okay, here's the anger. Here's the sadness. Here's the joy. And just allowing them to come and go like guests instead of trying to cling or push away. Do you feel like happiness is a sustainable thing? And do you feel it's healthy that we have this attitude of always striving for it? It's funny because when I first started my business, I called it happy momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that. Yes. (laughs) And I was really focused on depression at that time and had a meditation program actually that both of you have tried out. You again, yoga, which no longer exists. (laughs) But that was kind of my first foray into this world. And I ditched it because I realized for me, happy is so loaded. I prefer joy. I can feel joy. I don't know what it is about the word happy, but the part of me still kind of coils back from it. 
And maybe it's just this pervasiveness in the culture and the sense of it trying to attain something outside of yourself. I don't know what it is around that word, but for me, joy works better. So that's what I use. That feels right for me somehow, mm. even though it's pretty much talking about the same thing, I think. <laughs> but words matter. What they you do. choose to surround with yourself with and what you think they matter. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. I think it's something that we are all trying to do in different ways, with different tools. But I think to say if you don't have it, then life's a waste. Or I think that's when it gets difficult, is when it becomes just about that. As we're winding this down, wrapping it up, closing the container, Karen, we talked a lot about this joy as a euphemism for happiness. As we're doing this, you know, I think one of the most powerful practices with gratitude, as you mentioned, is sometimes just taking inventory and really feeling into what we're joyful for. And so what are you joyful for in your life? Mm. What just brings you deep, gooshy, yummy joyfulness? <laughs> my husband. Yeah, my rock. Him for sure. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it weren't for him. My dog. <laughs> my dog, Willow. and. My work is another big one that I found my way to something that lights me up inside that I feel like I'm good at and that I get to decide on my own terms how I want to move forward with my work and really be of service in the world. So that's just what's coming to mind now, but I'm sure there's other things as well. That's beautiful. And if the world wants to find you and work with you and explore your work in this world, how can they find you online? How can they reach out to you? Well, they can search for my name, which is incredibly difficult to spell, but that's my website. So it's KarenBaginski.com. We'll put it in the show notes too, but do you want to spell it out for them? Yeah, C-A-R-E-N-B-A-G-I-N-S-K-I.com. I also have a YouTube channel, so you can practice with me no matter where you're at. Amazing. And you do one-on-one -on -one coaching and do you have courses or how can people actually work with you? I do. Yeah, I work one-on-one, uh, -on -one, virtual and in-person sessions. And I also have a program called Being Enough, which is for the sensitive, accomplished woman who wants to kick that inner critic to the curb for once and for all. Amazing. I feel like that's going to be many of our listeners. So yes. This is perfect. Yes. Again, we'll link to it all at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can go there right now or whenever you feel like you want to dig into any of these resources. Karen, it was just so deep and delightful and, and just raw. And we adore you. We know, you know, we don't see each other that much in person, but whenever we do, it's just so, so lovely and so wonderful. So thank you for taking time to just connect and go deep with us today. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for getting uncomfortable. <laughs> Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.